I am so excited to share this jam-packed interview with you. Kira Sutherland is a naturopath and sports nutritionist who has been in private practice for 26 years. She's a university lecturer and a long course triathlete. She's also my mentor. In this episode, we discuss fat loss, intermittent fasting, faster training, training recovery, and hormone balance. We also delve into the nuances of applying nutrition to females with a particular emphasis on the plant-based diet, carbohydrate requirements, and protein requirements. If you're an active female with a plant-focused or plant-based diet, this conversation is for you. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Kira. So great to be talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining me um, for this conversation. I'm very excited to share you with my listeners. Um, I want to talk sort of females, athletes, hormones, plant-based, you know, let's try and unpack those areas today. They're not small topic. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe just share a little bit about your, like yourself, your background um, for the sake of our listeners who don't know you perhaps as much as I do. Well, thank you for having me as well. It's always, yeah, it's always exciting to be asked to be on a podcast. Um, so who am I? I am a, I'm a naturopath, nutritionist, herbalist. I'm actually also a homeopath, although I don't do that very often anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my postgrad qualifications are in sports nutrition. So I kind of straddle between the naturopathic alternative world and, and sports nutrition is really much more mainstream. So I, I kind of play between those worlds where I attack, that's probably not a right word, but (laughs) I use all my really holistic principles to apply it to exercising people. It doesn't necessarily have to be athletes. So I've been in practice a long time. I'm almost 26 years. Wow. That's so impressive. I finished, of course, when I was super young. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so I'm still in clinical practice and I lecture at uni and yeah, I still love what I do, I guess, because it can evolve all the time into things. Yeah. Because it's not stagnant, is it? You know, there's there's research and new theories and new practices and you can get your teeth stuck into that and it's it sort of refreshes how you practice and who you work with to some degree. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, keeping up with the research is a job in itself. I'm always amazed, whether you're a scientist or a practitioner, how much we always need to be learning. It blows me away. Yeah. It's, it's never ending. Like just yeah. as a minor example, you know, the way I treat, let's say iron deficiency now to the way I would have treated iron deficiency five years ago is, is poles apart. And yeah. I, I, it makes me feel for, you know, those, let's say nutritionist practitioners who may have consulted one way for a decade and then have to have like spun back on themselves and say, I'm sorry, I had it wrong. Like this is what the evidence shows and this is how we now need to to practice. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that happens with everything. I mean, look at, you know, the taboo topic of the, it's not taboo, but the topic that most practitioners don't love, but we all should, should totally embrace weight loss. You know, the theories on weight loss and what to do. And some of the stuff is still the same 25 years later and other stuff is just oh my God, completely different. And yeah, and and I think it's interesting as a practitioner because you have to weather the storms of all the fads that hit us, be it, oh my God, I won't even list them. But, and and I've actually been in practice long enough that I 
now seen the fads come back. It's almost like fashion. You know? Coming around again. It comes, it's like the 80s. I wasn't a practitioner in the 80s. I started in the mid 90s. But, you know, it's like 80s fashion is back now, which is just horrifying. And, and sometimes nutrition comes back like that. Yeah. And it's like, really, are we really revisiting this now? But there's always some new research reason that we're revisiting it. And there's there's good stuff to get out of every fad. I think the fads also push research. Like sometimes the fads come out and then the researchers have to go kind of not scramble, but they have to catch up with what some of the people pushing the bounds are doing. And I, it's an interesting arena to watch. Mm, mm. Well, that's actually one of the reasons why I probably have been attracted to your work and, and your content that you share is, is because you have a really great way of taking, let's say, a fad, you know, we could call a lower carbohydrate diet a yeah. fad or keto a fad. <laughs> yes. we, we could call intermittent fasting a fad. But I actually love that when you talk on those topics, you're usually really clear on identifying who it might be applicable to or how you might apply it. Yeah. And I think that's great because nothing in nutrition is really black or white. It's come from somewhere. Like there is some benefit to keto if oh, you're yeah. epileptic um, or there is some benefit to intermittent fasting, you know, if if your triglycerides are, are, are through the roof or your HbA1c is not where it needs to be or you're not a female trying to get pregnant, like that, yeah. that might it's be so a time true. to do intermittent fasting. I love how you always provide context around some of the fads that, oh, thank that you. may be out there. I feel like I spend my life doing that, going, here's the fad, here's what everyone's overdoing, here's the reality of what we should be doing. I feel like that is my whole job in life sometimes, is unpacking the fads that people, you know what it is? The fads, they all have some science behind them, but people take it too, everybody takes everything too far, Mm. right? They go, oh, if a little is good, then every day is better. And it's like, no, that's not what the science says. Yeah be it yeah anything it just always has to get unwound a little bit um what do you feel like is a fad that you're having to manage at the moment with um perhaps let's say your female clients oh it's still intermittent fasting it like, is. This is yeah it is and look and I'm pro intermittent fasting but the way it gets presented to us is very male dominated in the research. And a lot of the big names in intermittent fasting are male practitioners pushing it. And, and it's like, as you know, and I go on, I'm sure you've heard me lecture on this before, but all the research, you know, 70% of all the research we're looking at is all on men, or even if we have females in the research, they haven't divided down the results by sex or yeah. Yeah. And, and, we don't know. So we're giving advice based on a male body rather than a female body. And, and especially with intermittent fasting and how women are so much more sensitive, you know, because of their hormones to when they're eating and their circadian rhythms of their digestion and their hormones and even their insulin that we're not, we're looking at it as this great fad or this great application tool uh, yeah for weight loss but all these women are doing it kind of backwards because it is easier to do it backwards I'll explain backwards in a minute but and it's like oh my gosh you all this effort to almost do it right but the way they're doing it isn't right and then they're not getting those results and what I hate is when you know 
partners, like a male and female partner do intermittent fasting and the guy gets this incredible results and the female doesn't. And she's like, what am I doing wrong? I must, there must be something wrong with me. And it's like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just not doing it for a female body. For female, yeah. Can you go back a step? Why, because people may, this might not be, um, be something sure. that people intuitively know, but why is a lot of the research done on oh. men? So uh, until the 70s, well, there's different rules in different countries around if you have to include women in research or not. And I'm sad to say that Australia actually doesn't have any regulations on that still. Um, Canada is kind of leading the way. The US isn't far behind Canada. I actually don't know much about Europe because I can't read other languages, but, um, you can't, (laughs) you haven't learned that yet. No, no. I can, I can order food in almost any language. (laughs) Um, so women weren't included in research because there was the fear of like with drug trials, were they really pregnant and they didn't know it. And then the drug's going to affect the baby or it's harder to get women to do research because we're so busy running around with families or running around with families and jobs. And, and we're actually, you know, there's, there's actually research showing that it's hard to do research on women. Mm. Shouldn't say it that way, but, but um, because science has always been male dominated until the last couple of decades. And we're, it's harder to research women because of our menstrual cycle, because of our hormones, we actually appear almost like four different people within the month. Some people would argue we're almost six different people because our hormone profile is totally different every couple days. Mm. And then the profile between you and I is completely different. Again, you know, I might have higher hormones or lower hormones. So so to include women, it was either going to cost a lot more money because they needed to do a clinical trial for three to four times the length of using men. And we they would then have to ask a lot more questions or do more testing about where they were on their cycle or, or the menstrual cycle, or you have to put everyone on the pill to regulate, to you know moderate everybody yeah. so they're all the same, but then you're not really testing women with whatever you're testing, you're testing women on the pill. Yeah. So we got considered too difficult to test. And I, I get it. I get why that happened, but it does leave out 51% of the population yeah. in a clinical trial. And we, sorry, I'm on my like, I'm on the log here. We respond differently to foods, to exercise. We respond differently to drugs. Like our biggest thing we've realized is women have very different drug dosages a lot of the times to men. And we have never looked at that. You know, there's there was a study, oh, I don't know how long ago it was, but they looked at these 10 drugs that had to be removed off of the market over this three or four year period. And eight of the 10 drugs that had to be removed off of the market were removed because of side effects experienced by women only. But because they hadn't been tested in clinical trials, we didn't know women process these drugs differently. Did that make sense? Yeah. My big monologue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's all these reasons, which is, it's heartbreaking um, to realize we're, and we're still doing nutrition. We're still applying all these ideas that maybe don't work for 51% of us. Yeah. Well, I think like for you and I, we work with so many females that you sort mm. of you sort of learn, uh, you know, what principles can be applied and what principles need to be tweaked before you apply them. But it is a shame that not necessarily everything is is entirely evidence based. 
when you're when you're applying to, um, like to a female client. Yeah, and it's interesting with the evidence based because you know so much of naturopathy now is evidence based, but there's also application based. And what often we know, and this can happen with the fads, not even with women. We know certain, how am I I trying to explain this? Sometimes I think we see results before we see the research. Like you and I will know certain things work, but we don't actually have the research to back it up as well. So as much as I love evidence-based, I'm always a little bit like, Ooh, like, like, like if we go into fads, fads are there for a reason because they're working for somebody. So I'm always really interested to tease out what the research is saying about the fads versus what these quote experts are using the fads for. And then you have to find, you know, because sometimes those things push the bounds to do more research. So sometimes I think we know stuff works before we have the research to validate it. Yeah. Does that I, make any sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Like we have to be ahead of the curve because we can't necessarily. I heard, um, and now I wish I could draw on the doctor's name and I'm going to have to put it in the show notes or something like that because um, <laughs> because the doctor's name has escaped my mind. But it was something like 17 years for uh, like things to even appear in the oh, research yeah. and then appear in like medical practice um yeah. and you know in our space you've got to look at the client in front of you and what you what you've what you anecdotally know works and apply yeah. that you can't just be sitting and waiting for something to, to come out you know from a peer-reviewed study necessarily um no you put it in place no I mean you don't want to be renegade obviously as we aren't but it's interesting coming from that naturopathic background especially when I studied long enough ago that not everything we were studying was evidence-based. It was empirical knowledge. It was like, this is what we've done for hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is the results we've had. And, um, and as much as I'm a scientist, I love that I have that background of empirical knowledge and listening to the body and watching nature and, and be, I'm glad that I was taught with that subtle, observational application as well, because I think there's so much more we can get from people with that observation or checking in with them. And again, it goes back to that, you know, how much, you know, a consult with me takes an hour because we're going through everything and I'm looking at them and yeah, you're feeling for what's happening. And I think, I think that's so underrated these days. And as naturopathy gets more evidence-based, I'm actually scared that we're losing that skill. Mm, that's an interesting concept. Mm, I'm really scared, actually. I, I teach at university at, for 20 years, and it's it's amazing what we now teach. And the evidence, like, oh, my God, some of my students have, I feel like their science is so beyond my science in, in some areas, not all areas. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, I need to go back and study all this. And then I'm like, no, 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 I know what I'm, I'm in my lane. I know what I'm doing. But, you know what you're doing. But but um, yeah, there's science, and then there's the the hmm, how do I describe it? There's the oh, I don't even know what word I'm looking for. But that amazing awareness as a practitioner of working with that person in front of you. Well, this is what I was going to say: is it that 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 art of being a clinician or a practitioner, yes. whereby you you can understand you know what your on paper approach might be. 
but then you're working with a real human who has mm. children and a job and training goals or yeah. um you know their own their own limitations um eating disorders food dislikes you know you're trying to navigate all of that stuff when you're yeah. working with somebody so you can't always take like you know plan a on paper and apply it to person a you've got no. to take plan c and sometimes it's um, so true it apply is that. an art it is an art mm, to working yeah. with clients and it's but it's probably the really fulfilling side of it, right? Otherwise, you know, getting to watch people on their journey and, you know, just, yeah, watching people progress. I got a text this weekend. I was I will post about it at some point. I got a text. It's hilarious. I do boundaries and clients is always something we have to work on, but yeah. I use my mobile number with clients so they can okay. text me. And, um, and most people don't try to cross my boundaries. So it's good. But I got this gorgeous text with a photo of my client and her, her feet, which actually looks quite dirty. I don't know if she's just been gardening or what it was, but she, um, it was a photo of her feet on a scale and um and she was showing me how much she weighed in this photo because I haven't been able to see her face to face for six months because of COVID and um but she's been with me for it's over a year and a half now and she's gone from 122 kilos and she sent me a text and she was at 77 kilos wow and And she's done that in a year and a half or yeah and really slow really methodical just phenomenal yeah she was so scared she would never get below 100 right and here she's sending me a text and I'm like oh my god you're like you're within 10 kilos of me now (laughs) it's amazing and I'm not I'm not you know big or little but yeah it was amazing but it was just gorgeous that that beauty of working with people that you get to yeah there's so much joy to it as well That, that connection that you create um, yeah. when you're when you're talking with someone for 45 minutes to an hour at a time in oh, a yeah. consult yeah yeah um can we go back to intermittent fasting um yes. what are some of the warning signs that you see that just were on that like fad let's call it which it is noise but when when it's being applied what are some of the warning signs in a female that yeah. it mightn't be the right application for that person right so I don't even know if it's warning signs. My my two or three things that I think women do wrong with intermittent fasting, and then I'll go into a warning sign. Mm. Um, we are meant to be eating in the morning. I actually think all humans are meant to be eating in the morning, but men can somehow get away with this more than women. But if you actually look at the physiology of the human body, our insulin like we have circadian rhythms for sleep, right? Like, you know, we know what time, you know, we wake up because our cortisol is high and we go to sleep when our melatonin starts getting produced. And we have this beautiful circadian rhythm that our body is supposed to be following. Our digestive system actually has its own, I don't want to call it a circadian rhythm, but its own rhythm. Mm. And our digestion is actually strongest from the morning till about 2 p.m. We actually know our insulin works better. We produce more insulin and everyone's so afraid of insulin, but insulin is actually there to do some brilliant jobs in your body and you want it working well. Whereas once you get to the later afternoon and evening, our insulin isn't doing as good of a job as it was doing in the morning. Mm. 
And so what I hate about intermittent fasting, and I will use that word hate, is everybody wakes up and they're like, oh, I'm not hungry. So I'm just going to intermittent fast all morning and I'm not going to eat till 11 or 12 or one. And then people, you know, have their window of eating in the afternoon to evening and they back end all their calories when their digestive system isn't as potent. Mm. Whereas if you, what you you know, eating the same thing. And I'm not saying you have to start by eating at 7 a.m. You know, like nine o'clock is when I usually ask my clients to eat by. It depends on how they wake up. Yeah, yeah, what they're doing and all of that sort of stuff. But eating and starting in the morning and then finishing earlier. And finishing earlier is no fun. We all love eating at night. We all know that, but that's not where we should be eating. And we eat, you know, the longer you go in the day, without eating, and then you start eating, there's actually research that you eat a lot more calories in that afternoon than you would have had you eaten earlier during the day. Okay. And there, there's there's theories about protein, uh, protein hypothesis theory, I want to call it, but that it's not right because I've just said theory twice. But <laughs> protein, oh, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's about your body wants a certain amount of protein per day, and it's going to push you to eat until you get it. So also by front ending protein, be it if you're, you know, plant-based and it's plant-based proteins or whatever people are choosing to eat as a protein, it's not my judgment, Mm. um, that you'll be a lot more satisfied for the rest of the day if you satisfy your protein needs earlier. Mm. So, so, but the big thing for me in intermittent fasting is people not waiting too long to eat and just stopping earlier. And, and, and also women, my other thing is women don't need to do these tight windows of eating. Like sometimes people are trying to eat for a six hour window. Whereas a lot of the experts are now saying that women's bodies don't cope with that because we're too sensitive to insulin. We're too sensitive to cortisol. Oh, we're not sensitive enough to insulin. Not sensitive enough to cortisol. Sorry. I said that backwards. (laughs) Um, um, and you know, going too long of a window will actually make us store body fat or won't allow us to release the body fat that we're trying to release with the intermittent fasting. Mm. So that breaks my heart. And the second thing that breaks my heart is when women exercise, A, I want women eating before they exercise, even if it's just a tiny little snack, but worst breaking my heart is when people, male or females, exercise in the morning and then keep going with their fast and they don't eat properly within that beautiful 30, 45 minute window after training when their body is really ready to deal with more food. Mm. And they wait a couple more hours in the hope that they have a, you know, carryover fat burning effect, which hypothetically, scientifically you do, you'll burn a few more grams of fat, but in the end, you're doing all kinds of other terrible things to your body and yeah, you you won't end up with the benefit that you think you would have. Here's a question for you. Would you change the prescription depending on the type of training session that had been done? So um, let's say you had uh, someone go out and do uh, a walk or a walk or a, a recovery run, so a low yeah. intensity jog um, versus somebody who's doing like their, their interval session. Oh, yeah. Would you yeah. change the, the prescription around the timing of their nutrition? Or do you think for females, especially like menstruating females, that it pretty much needs to be a like eat within the hour after that session, regardless of the intensity? I think everybody needs to eat within an hour of the session post-training. That's like 
That's straight across the board. You are not allowed to not eat after training. How much you eat or if you eat before training, I would allow there to be differences. Like if you're going on a walk, if you're taking a little dog for a walk, meeting your girlfriends, or you're on a slow recovery run, you can get away with fasted training once or twice a week, as long as it's slow, gentle training. There is some adaptation that happens. There's some signaling that teaches the body to be a better fat burner. But overall, women generally feel better exercising if they have had a little something to eat. And I'm not talking a lot. I'm talking a handful of grapes, half a banana, one piece of toast, you know, dates are my favorite. Uh, one to two dates is like my favorite pre-training snack. Just a tiny bit of carb to fuel the body. Because what, what we also forget is in the morning, our cortisol is highest because that's when it, that weight helps to wake us up. Mm. And but cortisol is um, suppressive to the immune system and cortisol is catabolic and it breaks down muscle and we don't want our cortisol really high for the day. And the way to pull cortisol down is by eating. Um, and you know, when we exercise, that's a stress to the body. Cortisol goes up also with exercise. So it's just, we have this double impact of cortisol in the morning if we don't have a little snack before we train. So I'm a fan of a small snack before easy training, if you're going to go do intervals, if you're going to go do HIIT training, hardcore CrossFit, I'll have people have a little bit more, you know, up to kind of 50 grams of carb rather than 10 or 20 mm. before that. But no, I'm really strict on you have to eat within that hour after training because you've stimulated your cells to be more responsive to insulin after training. Like it's ready to do its job and your body basically just wants to make more glycogen or more star car stored carbohydrates from the food you eat right after you finish training. And we know in research that the longer you go from the time you train to the time you eat, glycogen synthase, the enzyme responsible for making glycogen starts dropping off. And once you get to like two hours from training to eating, you've set up almost like an insulin resistant state. So no matter what you eat, no matter how healthy it is, it's harder for your body to turn it into the fuel you need. Mm -hmm. Plus you're cranky the rest of the day. You're mm -hmm. tired. You'll be searching for sugar and food because you didn't make the glycogen. You can only make like half as much glycogen from the food you eat if you wait two hours. The same meal can make you almost double the glycogen if you eat it properly after training. Meal. So yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm actually vicious about that. That rule. <laughs> but That's it's probably my number one rule. I think it's a really great example though of how people can hear these, like you've called it pop nutrition. They can hear these like um these quotes or sentiments around intermittent fasting and I'll get it in clinic and I'm sure you do too. Oh, all the time. You know, people are fasting, they're training in the morning, they're still fasting, they come to you and they're like, it's not working. And you're like, okay, there's some strategy yeah. to your intermittent fasting. You, yeah. You do it on your rest day. We look at how long the fast is. Do you just need a 12 or a 14 hour fast? Because yeah. that's still, I would still consider that to be oh, a 12 fast. to 14 hours is all anybody actually needs. We don't, mm. we don't need to be so mean to our bodies in some ways, right? We're so, yeah, especially female bodies with hormones and, you know, signaling to make hormones, you know, the more we push it in extreme situations long-term, I mean, you can have one or two weeks where you do something 
you know, and stream and get away with it. Yeah. But, um, oh yeah. I mean, when people show up and it's not just intermittent fasting, people show up not eating after training. And I'm always like, you know, it's always my, my question. Cause I don't tell people that they should be eating after training. I ask about what time do you train? What do you do? Then what time do you eat? How long does that take? And it's amazing how often people just have over an hour between exercise and, you know, having a shower, getting on a bus, going to work, doing whatever, getting kids ready for school. And they haven't eaten. And I, I almost love hearing it because then I'm like, I'm, I can say, I'm going to make you feel so much better. And it's not even going to be hard. Yeah. Let me change your life. And it's not difficult. Yeah. And you can almost guarantee their energy is going to be double. And sometimes you meet these men or women that are eating really well. And as a practitioner, you're looking at their food diary, you're going, oh my God. Shit, what shit, can shit. I change here? What am I going to change? It's beautiful. And then you find out their timing is all off. And I'm like, so this is why it's not happening. And they're like, surely it can't just be my timing. And you're like, yep, yep. These two it kilos is. are going to disappear if you just change when you eat. Yeah. And it's, I love it. I, All I, those I, afternoon cravings and they're like, how do I get rid of the chocolate cravings in the afternoon? Or I just, you know, I just yeah. want to keep eating after dinner. And you think, all right, if we can just get you eating yeah. after training. And eating after change. dinner is tricky, right? Do you know the average person eats 30% of their daily calories after dinner? I, it would not surprise me. Mm. It would not surprise me. And I'm sure all those go, calories probably come from really nutrient deficient sources. Oh yeah. Cause we all stage. go for chocolate or you try to be healthy and then you have a bunch of nuts, which is, mm. you know, healthy, but calorie packed or yeah. Ice cream or whatever people Dried are doing. Fruit or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can I switch the scene a little bit or oh, switch absolutely. the tone a little bit? Um, still on females, still on potentially fads, um, depending on depending on who you're talking to, fad or not, um, but plant-based nutrition. Sure. So I'm predominantly plant-based. Yeah. Um, I work well, with And when you say predominantly plant-based, what does that actually mean? Because I'm always it, curious, everybody's sliding scale of plant-based. Yeah. I actually think plant-based should include like, yeah, you know, under that guide, that sort of banner of plant based, it should include some, you know, maybe some eggs here or whatever, because it's plant based, not plant only. But anyway, yeah. I say predominantly plant based to make it less confusing. I include eggs. So okay. um, I might have between maybe like between five and eight eggs a week. Um, oh. or four servings of eggs per week. So that's the, the animal protein that I include. Awesome. Yep. Just because they pack a punch um, from a nutrient point of view. But one of, I love working in this space because I, I think I ruffle feathers. People come to me thinking that, you know, being plant-based will solve all of their health problems. And I'm no. like, no, no. You want to be plant-based, like you've got to be serious about it. You're not no diet fixes everybody's problems no matter plant-based or not. Yeah. And in actual fact, I, there, there's real risks with plant-based if it's not done correctly. So I just, and not to be negative about it, I don't try and be negative. Oh, no. It's just we've got to be appreciative of facts that there are there are significant gaps in a plant-based diet, especially for a female. And I don't think it's being talked about enough. That's not. There's all like, like with the fasting, there's all of these male proponents of plant-based nutrition, but it's like, well, where's the conversation about for females and specifically what they need to make it work for their bodies um, yep. longer yep. term. So um, from a, yeah, from a nutritional point of view, where do you see being some of the biggest gaps that you have to work with women on? Um, 
to do with plant-based? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. So, and I work with everyone from omnivore to vegan to plant-based to whatever. Um, I love when people are predominantly plant-based, but they keep the eggs. That actually is like my happy place for plant-based people. And I know that doesn't work for everybody and some people want to be pure vegan and and that's great. But yeah, I always shed a little happy tear when people say they still have eggs because I just don't, yeah, as long as you're not allergic to them because they're just... They're just so versatile. They are, and they cover, they tick so many boxes that an otherwise plant-based diet misses. So for me, the issues with plant-based, where people people fall down that I see clinically is protein amounts. And there's a lot of disagreement about how much protein people should have, depending on which pop, and I'm not saying plant-based is pop diet, but depending on which diet people pick, I wrote a blog once called, you know, why nutrition is the new religion, because people, people go at it with religious fervor, right. And they get angry if you're not within your religion or, you know, which freaks me out. Um, so there is actually a ton of research on how much protein we now need, especially for moving bodies, especially for people doing sport. And the reality is all humans should be doing sport. But we now know, you know, the RDA or the RDI for protein still sits at 0.8 grams times your body weight in kilos. But that's to keep people out of protein deficiency. That's nowhere near for optimum. And depending on if we're a teenager and we're growing, if you're pregnant and have a little baby growing, if you are doing extra sport, there's all these reasons that your protein needs go up. And so my thing is when people aren't hitting good protein needs, you know, like the the bottom end of the scale for somebody walking in my clinic is 1.2 grams times their body weight in kilos per day, spread out over the day. Mm-hmm. But that's the lowest I will let someone sit on. If someone's trying to lose weight, if someone's trying to gain muscle, we're moving them up to 1.5, 1.6. And that's nowhere near the top end of the scale that some people do. Mm-hmm. So people falling down on protein, and, and really, and, you know, with plant-based, yes, we now, you know, the issue with, with plants is having limiting amino acids and we're, we're way beyond, oh, you have to protein combine. We know that that's kind of, we don't really need, you know, as long as it's within a day, you know, you get all those amino acids, but it's harder to die. Where do I go with this? Plant-based proteins don't kick the same, give you the same kick and punch in a good way that animal-based ones do. And that's not a problem, but you just have to be more cautious because even though you could say, oh, but this food has this much protein, it's harder to absorb it. You know, it goes back to science and when we studied biological value of proteins and some proteins are a lot more digestible and easier to utilize their amino acids than others. And, um, and we need to watch that. And I think the biggest thing is when people go plant-based, they do it. And, and this is true for any eating style, not just plant-based. People get really into it for a couple months and they do it super well. And then life gets busy and in the way and things fall off. And if you are plant-based and you're not highly focused on your protein, that can fall way below your needs. And I've seen it with athletes that had no concept how low they had fallen. I had a, I had a elite track cyclist, like cycling track, uh, um, mm. 
And he, in six months, by accidentally not eating enough protein, because life got busy, lost 50% of his power and speed output. And it takes a long time to get that back. He had lost muscle mass by just not having enough protein. Mm -hmm. No, that's an extreme example. Obviously, we're not all trying to race bicycles, but it's just, it's, yeah. So protein is my big one. Not surprising, but it's, yeah. But it's, it's still I just yeah. And and if you're going plant-based and trying to hit your needs, I I would almost say you have to find yourself a good um protein powder. Protein powder, yeah. I, yeah. I consider protein powder a food the way they're made right now. We've got beautiful protein pea protein powders, we've got hemp, which is super popular at the moment, and a lot of people are really liking that. You know, there's rice-based the protein powders are so much better than they used to be. Yeah. Um so and they're not so, just for bodybuilders, like for anybody listening, no. just, not just for bodybuilders. That, you they're know, for they your smoothies. Not, yeah, absolutely for your smoothies. They turn your, turn your smoothie into a meal. Yeah, or even like coconut yogurt. Coconut yogurt is a great idea. Oh my God, it's yummy. But it has no protein. You know, we have all these dairy replacements that are amazing tasting, but they got no protein. Oh, like, nutritional value, you know, yeah. All of our beautiful plant-based milks or milk substitutes or whatever I'm supposed to call them now, there's like zero protein in most of those. So you need added protein in them or that's where you put your protein powder in them. It's, yeah, like I, I love coconut milk, but there's no protein in coconut mm. milk. No. Even almond milk. You got to read those labels, right? Um, the other issue with plant-based that I think people forget about is just the nutrient deficiencies that can slowly creep in, you know, Mm. that especially with women, because we're using up so many of our nutrients in our hormones, things like, I mean, everybody knows about B12. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We can put that to the side. Yeah. Although it's amazing how many people I meet that don't supplement it. And I'm like, what what do you mean you're not supplementing? Oh, they're having their spirulina or their mushrooms. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Just take a supplement. (laughs) And I'm always amazed how many people get confused that mushrooms have protein. Like all vegetables actually contain protein. Let's get real. Like, I think it's like an eighth or a Sixth of your protein needs actually just get met by eating vegetables, right? We we don't even think about that. But is it is it mushrooms? Everyone's like, oh yeah, it's super high in protein, and it's like, mm, no, no, mm, yeah. Is it, is it protein or is it iron? It's it's no. Everybody, I think everybody's getting it confused from B twelve. I don't know, but yeah. it's one of those things that kind of has left over, and I'm like. No, mushrooms are not just because you can cook it like a hamburger on the yeah. stove and eat it like a burger does not mean it's protein replacement. Yeah. I have to Google that. I hope I'm not wrong there. But um, so besides B12, your vitamin D, your zinc, 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 yeah, magnesium, even though veggies are so high in magnesium, I see so many plant-based people really low in my zinc, B6, magnesium, and then your beautiful omega-3s. Yeah. You got to search for those or supplement. And there are beautiful supplements now that are plant-based, thankfully. But, you know, those are all so vital for hormone production mm-hmm. and for mental health. And I don't think that gets talked about enough because- I see a higher incidence of plant-based women with more anxiety mm. than I do omnivores. And I don't, I don't know, you know, I can't categorically state why, but I always worry that it's, 
exacerbates it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Essential fatty acids, protein, potentially poor blood sugar control, like a whole food plant-based diet I think is like 80% carbohydrate. Yeah. Yeah. If it's 80% carbohydrate, then where's the fats and the protein? Yeah. But zinc, zinc is that big one. And um, I was reading a paper the other day that there's research that's just come out. This is in sports nutrition, but low creatine in the body. And creatine, you know, we think of creatine for bodybuilders, right? You know, people use it to bulk up. But creatine is in quite a few foods, but they're basically animal-based foods. And vegetarians have lower creatine levels. Creatine, low creatine has now been linked to depression. Mm. And so they're looking at, because I remember emailing one of my really good girlfriends who's super strict plant-based and does a lot of sport. I'm like, have to check this one. And she has a bit of depression. And I'm like, have a look at this one, you know? So, I mean, it's interesting. And it's, you know, plant-based can be so amazing, but you just have to be on top of it. And if you think you can do plant-based without supplements, you better reserve two to three hours a day yeah. for your cooking and your fermenting and your sprouting and your grinding and your chewing. And get ready to <laughs> eat a lot as well. Oh my God, you can't. You can't get it. Yeah. You get tired of eating. I, I think any form of nutrition is a lifestyle because ultimately, you know, the way you eat has to be something that is sustainable. But like plant-based nutrition is well and truly a lifestyle because you've got to be interested in food and you have to be interested in your body and and take care of it and be engaged with it and and yes learn about what supplements you need to take on the topic do you work with many athletes who are subject to drug testing Mm. or screening under a starter yeah so I do um and um yeah, I do. And often I work with, a, I work with a lot of, te- I work with a lot of elite athletes, not a lot, but I work, you know, I have plenty, but I work with a lot of up and coming teenage elite athletes. That's a real area that I love. I love mm. teenage. I'm like that rare person that loves teenagers. <laughs> and um, I, I find them just so fascinating and gorgeous. And they're actually so ready to learn and listen. You just yeah. have to say it in the right way yeah. and motivate them properly. And um, and a lot of them are now drug tested, right? Once you make a national team or a state team, even at the high school level, you can get drug tested. So yeah, okay. yeah. So I'm always playing around with, you know, what supplements you can and can't give. What um, because so many things, you know, there's the issue that there's things that are truly banned, and then there's the issue of contamination of a supplement. And I think that's what people where they go wrong is that even your favorite brand, you know, if we go to naturopathy and our beautiful practitioner only brands, there can be cross-contamination from other things being made in the same factory, especially if the company doesn't have their own factory Mm. and there's cross-contamination. And if somebody tests positive and you were the one that handed over the supplement that tested them positive, uh, well, well, let me back up. If somebody tests positive, it's it's out. It depends on the sport, but it's typically a two-year ban. But in some sports, it can be lifetime. So somebody's career is now over or very halted, and you don't want to be the practitioner handing over a supplement that is potentially the cause. And then you also have the issue of some athletes, not the ones I'm working with, but some athletes will choose to take performance-enhancing drugs on purpose. And then if they get caught, 
it's very rare for an athlete to go, yeah, you're right. I'm a cheater. Yeah. I'll take the band. I'll just hit me on the face. I'll take it. They have every reason why it was an accident. And I get that because accidents do happen as well. So I'm not having a go at athletes, but one of the easiest things to blame is supplements. Yeah. So often when somebody does test positive, they'll be like, no, 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 I must have accidentally taken it in a supplement, which I, I don't know the stats. Maybe 50% of the time that could be true. So I'm super cautious about only giving um, supplements that have actually been through a third-party testing protocol. Which, you know, for the sake of people that aren't aware of what that takes, yeah. sending a supplement through a third-party testing protocol oh is not cheap or easy, right? Yeah. Like you no. really want to have that yeah. supplement. Yeah. It's every so, bottle, isn't it? Yeah. So basically what it is, is every batch. So when you make batch. a supplement, you make them in batches, right? You take all those raw ingredients and you jam it together in a couple of big vats and you make, pretend we're making our magnesium powder with B vitamins. You then have to take two bottles from that batch and send it to this third party tester who tests it for 400 different potentially banned substances. Every time you send a batch to be tested, it's another $500 or it was $500 two years ago. It might be more now for them to go, yes, this batch is safe. And then they get this little seal. They can, you know, in Australia, the main test third party testers are called informed sport. And the other company is called Hasta, H-A-S-T-A. Mm-hmm. And you'll see a little, the company will go to the effort on the bottle to say inform sport tested or Hasta tested. And yeah, I do not hand over a supplement that's not been tested, no matter how ethical or amazing I think the company is. If they have not drug tested, I'm not using it. Yeah. which Because I, I just don't, I don't want to be in, I don't want to be the cause of some issue, right? Not at all. But I think that's really relevant for people to hear because you can't do plant-based long-term or safely or sustainably without necessarily having a supplement. And all the, like, you know, the pin-up athletes who uh, say they're plant-based and it's changed their performance and, you know, made them the athlete that they are, um, they would either be lying about how long they've been plant-based for, or Mm. they'll be, they'll be the ones who can get the the batch tested supplements that allow them to, to keep performing the way they are. um, Yeah. And you, in, in every industry and sport, I'm not having a go plant-based. I'm not having a go in everything. People say one thing and then they do something else. And I'm not talking about plant-based. It's like, it's like, certain sports products, like sports drinks and sports foods, you know, people get paid to say, oh, this is what I use, but is it, you know, when you in biking, so my husband's a bike rider, so I know a lot of this, you know, half the time the bike, not half the time, but sometimes people are actually riding bicycles that are a different brand of bicycle, but it's been sprayed to look like their sponsored brand. Oh, absolutely. Because they'll have, yeah. I mean, that doesn't happen that much anymore, but it used to, but, um, your body, I don't care what diet people have had, whether you're plant-based, omnivore, whatever, you're, the athlete somebody is comes from their genetics. It comes from their commitment to training, comes from their mindset, and it comes from their nutrition. And I would say you can't credit nutrition for more than a quarter to an eighth 
of how great an athlete is. And I've totally made up those statistics, by the way. That's like a Kira stat. So don't quote me on that. But yes, it if you already are this incredible athlete and you aren't doing this right diet for your body, by changing yourself to the correct diet that is in the absolute groove with your genetics and your body, it'll give you an extra 5%. But you know, or if you get off the foods that you're sensitive to or allergic to, that could give you a massive impact about how your body feels and recovers and performs. But to only credit nutrition, even though I'm a nutritionist, I would say no way. Mm. You know, it's not, it's what people have done every day in and out for years and decades that makes somebody, yeah. Yeah. And, and if you're, if you're basing your food choices, you know, purely after hearing the one athlete, you know, claim their, their success to be on the nutrition, um, think again, go and get some expert advice because it just becomes another form of pop nutrition, right? Absolutely. And we have that problem with keto. You know, we have this huge push with keto and low carb with athletes and athletes like, my God, this is the best I've ever felt. And, and it was like, "Mm, yeah, Uh, there, there were issues with that you know, there's issues. It's like any documentary, whether it's plant-based, whether it's keto, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I struggle with the documentaries that scare people into any diet because they have cherry picked the science and made it sound one way. And those are the ones. Yeah. Yeah. That's when it becomes a religion and people get swayed and converted and, and it's, you know, every diet can be really useful for people, but it, it's also your genetics. What, what, how does your body cope with this? Yeah. And um, I hate how we get sold these huge blanket statements. We had it with ketosis and athletes about, oh God, it was in the early, t- I want to say around 2015, 2014, there was this huge push in endurance sport for everyone to go keto. And it's like, and this will bring us back to women and hormones. <laughs> You know, keto is like low to no carb. That's like 20 to 50 grams of net carb. That's like, you know, if people don't know, that's two to four pieces of bread in a day. That's it. But mainly you're getting it, you're getting it vegetables, vegetables, like vegetables and fruit. That's it. And, and, um, you know, there's a place for keto, but, and there's a place in training for some ketosis to teach the body something, but it's not, there is no research saying long-term it's useful for athletes and speed and performance. There's nothing. And um, the problem is, especially again, for women, was there research on this? And we're not even talking about athletes now, we're talking about just women in general. We, there is theory and some research that we need a certain amount of carbohydrate for our, what's known as your HPO or H hypothalamic pituitary adrenal and ovarian axis, we need a certain amount of carbohydrate for the body to be told it's safe. Mm-hmm. You have enough food, you can reproduce. It's You're not in danger and having to run. And I don't want you to fall pregnant if I jump too many topics here. There's something called LH pulsatility. So luteinizing hormone pulsatility, um, which is the start of this cascade that eventually helps you to ovulate. And if you don't hit a certain amount of carb per day, longer term, you don't signal LH pulsatility. You eventually don't have a period, you don't have ovulation and then you don't have a period. And 
that is bad mm. for women because yeah. not having a period might sound convenient, but you are not accruing bone mineral density. If you don't have a period, there's, you know, all kinds of other things going on. And, and women in their carb phobia, you don't have to be in ketosis. Women are so carb phobic. Can we it's be crazy? Can we be clear though? I know you probably can't give a certain figure. Oh, sure. But there is a very big difference between um, ketosis, so the like yeah. 20, 40 grams of carbs per day, um, versus like the, you, you know, what the standard Australian might be eating, which is like the 400 to 600 grams of carbohydrates sure. per day. Sure. So we're not saying women have to be up there necessarily no. to keep no, that, God, no. that, um, no. that ovulation so, happening. So, so the estimate, I know what you're about to ask, I'll just tell you. The estimate is probably a hundred grams of carb a day to 120 grams for LH pulsatility. That is the theoretical amount we shouldn't go below. For some women, it will be higher than that. Some women might be 150 grams. Some women might get away with 80 or 90, but that's rare. You know, we're all totally different. You know, if you line up a bunch of women, we all have very different body shapes and types. If you know, we got that. If you go into the science of that, it's about to combine some words mesomorph, ectomorph, endomorph, you know, a runway model and a shot putter should be eating the same thing. It's a totally different body type, right? Mm-hmm. Your little pocket rocket aerobics instructor that's like five foot two and the energizer bunny, and they need to eat every two seconds or they get hangry, versus, you know, the super tall basketballer that doesn't need as much food and doesn't need to eat as frequently. They're all going to have slightly different um, carb needs as well. But I would say I don't really let people be below a hundred to 120. Um, Laura Bryden, who is like the guru on women's hormones and a really good friend of mine, she would, she would push me to say 150. (laughs) She actually gets most of her clients and she, this is talking about when she's working with women who have lost their period, yeah. their amenorrheic, she pushes people to 150 to 200 for a period of time and then settle back. And that sounds like a lot to some women, but it's not. Like a bagel can contain 45 grams of carbohydrate, just a bagel. Mm. You know, a cherry tomato is a gram of carb. Like carbs are everywhere and they're not the enemy and they're so yummy anyway. But I think like I th- I think 100 to 200 grams of carbohydrates is an absolutely doable zone. It, oh, it's, absolutely. It's it's an ideal zone for those women who are doing less than that. It's like this, just this weight off their shoulders. Like, oh my god, I can have a banana again. Yeah, whilst training absolutely. without feeling guilty. Oh yeah. Um, and the, if, and the more you train, the more you need. And mm-hmm. the safest time to have your carb. The safest if you're scared of carb, is that post-training window. And that's what I love teaching about that anyways, because it's like, let me show you where you can feel safe. Mm. And you, I don't want to say somebody's earned food because I know that's not psychologically what we should be saying to people, but I love being able to teach women how safe it is to eat carbs after training because that's what the body wants. It needs a little bit of protein, but it really wants that carbohydrate. And you've worked hard and you've exercised 
give the body what it needs. Just give it. I describe mm. it as replacing. You got to put those carbs back where they came from, which Absolutely. is your muscle glycogen. Just do what your mother told you and put things back where they came from. And you, I meet all these women in boot camps. They're like, yeah, after training, I have my my eggs and I have my spinach and my mushrooms. And I'm like, and mm. <laughs> and that's that's you know five Where's grams of sweet potato. Yeah. yeah, or or you know gluten free toast or whatever it is they're choosing to do. But it's like. We're just robbing ourselves of vital fuel and robbing ourselves of the pleasure of, you know, carbs hit us for serotonin and they make us feel good and they, you know, it's amazing how mean we can be to our bodies. To ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Our culture has taught us that, unfortunately. Now I could keep talking to you for a very long time, so I may have to get you back for a part two. That's right. um, Always good for part two. (laughs) We will wrap it up, but firstly, um, are you still writing your book? And if so, where are you at with it? Is it coming out anytime soon? And can you share what, it, yeah, what it's about? Sure, sure. So I have, well, it's an, I have an ebook that just came out like three weeks ago. So I have an ebook called Eating for Uber Health because Uber Health is my business name for the last, yeah. let me qualify. It's been my business name for 22 years, long before Uber. <laughs> um, so yeah, I have this beautiful ebook that's just come out that's, you know, over a hundred recipes and it's all about basics of kind of naturopathic sports nutrition. And the big thing is I've divided it into two sections, which are like foods to eat any time of the day. And the second section is about foods to eat after training. It's mm-hmm. literally done for you. Like here's these great meals for after training. Um, it is, I, I need to qualify, it's an omnivore. There are plenty of plant-based recipes, but it's an omnivore recipe book because um, I wanted it to work for everybody. Yeah. Um, lots of eggs <laughs> in that recipe book. Um, so that, um, that's out, but awesome. there's, other, there's another book in the works that's more for women's sport, eating around your cycle, and that will probably be the end of twenty. I don't even know what year we're in anymore. 2022, that should okay. be done. There's a more, I'm faster with online courses and but there'll be a lot more webinars next year coming out with Laura Bryden and I as well. Amazing. So, yeah. Um, and where can people go to learn about those? Right. So I am, my website is just my name. So just kirasutherland.com.au or on socials, I am uberhealth all one word, U-B-E-R-H-E-A-L-T-H. So yeah, come find me, come ask questions. Yeah. And I'll pop those in the show notes as well. Awesome. Uh, um, Thank you so much, Kira. It's been so great to talk to you. Thanks for hashing out some some, uh, pop nutrition myths. I'm sure it's been helpful for a lot of our listeners. Yeah, yeah. It's good. I love going over it too. It reiterates, reiterates it in my brain. So thank you for having me. Amazing. Thank you. Have you been thinking about taking a more plant-based approach to your nutrition for the sake of your health? Or are you already plant-based and in need of further education, guidance, and mealtime inspiration? Well, if the answers are yes or yes, I think you would love Plant-Based Kickstarter. It's a five-week online program that I developed with the health-conscious plant-based eater in mind. It includes one week of education, four weeks of meal planning, and weekly live seminars with me. I'm Ellie. I have a bachelor's degree in health science, majoring in exercise science and nutrition. I'm now a holistic nutritionist with a love of yoga. I'm a dog mum and I'm a runner. And I have a particular interest in supporting digestive health, 
hormone balance and metabolic health for the active and or plant-based female. In completing Plant-Based Kickstarter, you can expect improved digestion, greater confidence around your food choices, an understanding of how to prepare for and maintain the optimal plant-based diet, improved appetite control, and in many cases, fat loss. I would love for you to check it out at nutritionally.com forward slash plant-based Kickstarter. The next course begins February 28th and registrations open very soon.